So, is it working? Is it working, Diego? Uh, so, this afternoon then, of course, we will begin, or we will return to, the meditative cultivation of loving kindness. And there were two ways that are taught in the, in the Theravada tradition, both of which I think are very, very good, and they're again, universally relevant. One is to start, in the, they both start from the center, start with oneself, and then one approach is to bring to mind individuals, uh, beginning with those for whom one finds it easiest to cultivate a sense of warmth, of affection, of caring, love, and then gradually extend out, 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 until finally there are no barriers and you can bring anyone to mind, and the heart is equally open as it is for those who are nearest to you. So that's the approach we'll take this, this afternoon. And the other one is just more uh, spatial, and that is just kind of like as if you're a sonic boom of loving kindness, and you simply send it out in all directions. And then we'll, do, we'll venture into that one, taught by the Buddha himself, we'll venture into that one tomorrow afternoon. Uh, but also just a little bit of preamble to such practice. It's, um, it's very easy to, if one has false expectations or any unrealistic ex expectations, it's very easy to get discouraged in this practice pretty quickly, thinking probably everybody else is just saturating themselves and just oceans of loving kindness, and I just have some thoughts coming up. And it's pretty thin and conceptual. And I don't think this practice is working. Right? Um, overall, when one first begins such practice, it is largely conceptual probably not profoundly transformative, um, but slowly, slowly with time, uh, it, can move more, it can move more from the conceptual realm to the, uh, to the realm of really experiencing genuinely and deepening aspiration. And bear in mind, this is a very crucial point. It's, I don't know that it's made so often. Metta, metta bhavana is taught quite frequently. Uh, I don't know, I simply do not know how frequently it's taught that metta is really not an emotion, not in the Buddhist understanding. Now in English, if we say, is love an emotion? I think probably, yeah. I just love chocolate. I love, I love nature. I love my mom. I love all kinds of things. And that's an emotion. It's kind of a gladness, a feeling, an attraction, and so forth and so on, and it's an emotion. That's simply not metta. Now, it's, of course, not to say that metta, or the Sanskrit term is maitri, of course it's not to suggest that when we experience loving-kindness, there's no emotional aspect to it. Of course there is. A mother's love for her child, a mother's love for her child in the sense of an absolutely heartfelt yearning, may my child find happiness, be joyful, be, have a meaningful life, be healthy. That's, that's loving-kindness. Now when a child, when a mother gazes lovingly at her child, does she feel an emotion? Well, I, I leave the mothers of the world to answer that one. I think, of course, the answer is yes. But the emotion itself is not the loving kindness that goes along with it. But the emotion can be there, or something like the emotion can be there without much of the aspiration. It can just be like little flower petals falling from the sky. I feel so loving to everybody. But it doesn't really have any aspiration behind it at all. It just kind of, so I can imagine, I, don't, I have no idea how frequently this occurs, but I can imagine that one might engage in the practice of metta bhavana because one really likes the feeling that arouses. And it could happen. And so basically, it's just kind of self-gratification. It could happen. The aspiration, the aspiration is such that you're sitting perhaps in, in seclusion in a meditative cottage. You may be sitting up in a cave or some meditation hut in a hermitage for years at a time. I know people like this, and some of them very deeply loving people. 
very compassionate people, yogis, who spend 10, 20, 30 years in retreat. And a person who doesn't understand might think, well, you can't be very loving, you're still loving your cave. You know? As if loving kindness is somehow equivalent or necessarily correlated with activity in the world. It may be, it may not be. So one may be very, very engaged in a lot of philanthropic activity, a lot of good works. How much loving kindness there is, that's an open question. It all depends on motivation. So one may be spending millions of dollars doing very good works in the world. And that's a good thing, for sure. But is it really strongly correlated with loving kindness? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's a tax break. Maybe it's because you want to have your name on a lot of things. The Alan Wallace Foundation. The Wallace, you know, blah, 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 blah. Look at me. Am I not one of the greatest philanthropists? I'm waiting for my Nobel Prize any day. You know, like that could be all kinds of motivations. So bottom line, once again, is loving kindness. The cultivation of loving kindness is arousing an aspiration. And we know aspiration as in desire, as in yearning, as in wish. And we know, of course, uh, that just generally speaking, for aspiration, for that whole genre, aspiration, yearning, and so forth, that if we aspire for something, and then the opportunity arises to get it, then we go for it. So the aspiration is making us poised to, to realize that aspiration, right? Uh, if you're really hoping, if you're really hoping they'll serve ice cream one day in the evening, you know, for the lunch of the evening, like there's an ice cream thing back. You might have seen it. Does it ever open up to us, or is it always going to remain a hidden treasure? So one may be aspiring, maybe one day they'll open it up, and that will be the dessert, ice cream. So if you're cultivating that aspiration, and then actually they bring that big bin out, and they open it up, and it's ice cream day, since you've been cultivating the aspiration for ice cream, what are you going to do when the ice cream is available? You're going to chow down two or three scoops. <laughs> Because you're poised, you're ready, and it's an aspiration. Well, in a similar way, it's not that goofy. If you're really cultivating the genuine aspiration, may others find, and what aspiration? May others find happiness and the causes of happiness. That's it. That's all there is to it. And that includes hedonic happiness. So if other people are hungry, you want them to have food. If they're ill, you want to have them to have medicine. If they're looking for companionship, you want them to have them by the good companion. And if they're looking for shamatha, for insight into nibbana, and so forth and so on, you want that for them as well. And so it is an aspiration, but of course, just like with the ice cream, it's not that silly an example. Because they're both your needs, right? But when you have the opportunity, when the ice cream is there, then you go for it. And likewise, if in your meditative solitude, you can actually cultivate the aspiration of loving kindness, then when you see a person, you encounter human being, non-human being, who's really wishing for happiness of some sort, then just like the ice cream, you're ready to go. You're ready, wow, good, that's what I've been hoping for. How can I do this? What can I do? I've been wanting this all along. And I see here's someone who's in need, someone who'd really like to find happiness, and I can help them. So it poises you for action. So for myself, I have absolutely no qualms, no reservations about people, because it's part of my world worldview. In my worldview, it makes really good sense for a yogi to go up in the mountains for 30 years and be meditating and cultivating loving kindness, compassion, and so forth, in solitude. And, and a, a person who doesn't share this worldview, well, I can give an example. Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett, a very smart guy, philosopher of mind. And he commented, those Buddhist, Buddhist and Christian hermits, when they go out and they spend years in solitude, he said, the most one, one can say of them is they're not harming anybody. 
That's it. In other words, they made themselves completely irrelevant. They count for nothing because they're not producing, I suppose, and I'm purely because these materials. Well, materialistically, what are they contributing to the world? Nothing. Nothing. And I rejoice in that. He doesn't. Because as far as he's concerned, not doing anything at all. They just say, well, okay, you're not hurting anything, but neither is his glass of water. So you've just turned into a glass of water that no one can drink. Well, that's kind of useless. Right? But from my view, if a person, this is like a person going off and charging a battery for 30 years. Whoa, when they come out, they'll be totally charged. And I've seen this. When Genlam Rimba, Yogi has spent like 25 years in retreat. We invited him to the United States for two years to teach. He was there for just two years, but the impact that his teaching and his presence had on those few people, because he wasn't famous, he wasn't a celebrity, but the impact that his life and his teachings had on the people who came to see him, by these people, lingers years and years. He's passed away now, but the effect is still there. Would that effect be there if he had not spent 25 years in retreat, cultivating bodhicitta, realization of emptiness? I think so. So, final word before we jump in. We can speak of the cultivation, the meta bhavana. Bhavana means to cultivate. Cultivate. That's the, the most commonly used term in Sanskrit that we translate as meditation in Tibetan, gom, gom. So, bhavana in Sanskrit. Right? And it literally means to cultivate. To cultivate. So, this is meta bhavana or maitri bhavana, chamba gom in Tibetan, chamba gom. And so from one perspective, this developmental perspective, then we are cultivating an aspiration, a yearning, an ideal that is not so cultivated, not so well-developed. Perhaps it's very limited. Maybe our, our real sense of warmth, affection. Uh, another word, meaning of the word maitri is really a primary connotation of friendliness. Nice down-home term, ordinary term. Maitri means friendliness. Friendliness. And so, so Kalyanamitra, Kalyanamitra, Gewe Shinyin, Gewe Shinyin. Kalyanamitra, direct translation, Kalyan is virtue, spiritual, virtue, and Mitra is friend. And Mitra, Maitri, same root. Mitra, Maitri. So, Maitri means friendliness. So, for some people, their friendliness only goes to people maybe of their same, that they consider similar. Like my family, my neighbor, people of my religious group, my golf buddies, people I like. So the loving kindness flows out, and then boom, 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 and then it's all blocked in. Oh, you have different skin color. Oh, you're an ethnic group. Oh, you don't speak my language. You're not American. Who are you? You're not my friend. You speak Spanish. Whatever. So then it hits, hits the blockage. For most people, there is some there is some flow. There's some flow of loving kindness. Most people, there are a few, but most people do feel genuine loving kindness. They really care about the well-being of someone else, at least themselves. Maybe their children, family, close friends. So it flows out, and then it kind of stops, or it gets very thin. But it is there. So it's not like we have to create it out of nothing. But we're taking it, it's like having an artesian well that has a lot of cement on it. So a little trickle here, a little trickle there, so the artesian well can't get out. Really flow evenly in all directions. So that's what method, the Maitri Bhavana is for. It is cultivating so we get that concrete out of the way. So this natural impulse needs no barriers. We see a person with different color, shape of eyes, and it is so trivial. But it has come up, hasn't it? People, oh, you know, you have different eye shapes than mine. I mean, when one, when one thinks that must be a joke, that really must be a joke, right? Do you 
feel less closeness? Is it eye shape? <laughs> really, this is hysterical. Let alone the skin pigmentation. I mean, it's just hysterically insane. But of course it happens. And so that the barriers are broken down. And not only for trivial stuff like eye shape and skin color muscle, but also there are people who do, whose behavior is not so good. Some people behave in very unethical ways. And so forth. But the flow of love and kindness, the wish that they may truly find genuine happiness, and it causes happiness, that can go out to people whose behavior also is problematic. Wishing them, like looking at a, at a person who is ill, and wishing that that person be healthy. So, on the one hand, cultivation. We're cultivating that which is there, but we're like a little plant that's been not got enough water, and the soil is not very good, and it's not getting enough sunshine, so it's a little plant that's having a hard time growing. Then we we cultivate it. We put on fertilizer and water and more sunshine so it can really grow and come to its fullness. So that's one way of doing it. It's an authentic way of doing it. But another way of doing it, and now really very much from the Mahayana perspective, very much from the Dzogchen perspective, is that there is already a groundswell of really limitless loving kindness, bodhicitta. From the Dzogchen perspective, from the Dzogchen perspective, the bodhicitta is already there. There's ultimate bodhicitta, and there's relative bodhicitta. And the ultimate bodhicitta is simply the immediate realization, written by itself, and the realization of written. That's ultimate bodhicitta. And the system, a little bit different than good. Very complementary. Whereas relative bodhicitta, in the Dzogchen perspective, is bodhicitta. And so one is said to be derivative of the other. The relative bodhicitta, the heartfelt aspiration made and achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. This is just the natural outflow, the natural expression of ultimate bodhicitta, which is your Buddha nature. Right? So from that perspective, much more of a discovery perspective, then it's not so much a matter of cultivating loving kindness, but of unveiling, unveiling loving kindness, removing the barriers. And so the thoughts that we will generate, the images we will generate, the aspirations we will seek to generate in this practice that we're just about to begin, is on the one hand, one can see it as cultivating, cultivating that which is not there very much, trying to cultivate it much further, but from another perspective, thinking these thoughts, these images arousing these desires, is simply trying to unveil something that is already there so it can come to fulfillment. So it's a little bit like resonance a little bit like resonance. And that is, imagine, it's a lovely working hypothesis. We don't know whether it's true or not. But imagine that you already have just boundless compassion, boundless capacity for compassion. It's waiting there just to flow forth. But it's being blocked in all different kinds of ways. Focusing on I, me, mine. Focusing on my hopes, my desires, just attending to me and my family, my friends, and then, and then stopping. And not really attending with an open heart anybody else's well-being. And that blocks, that blocks. And so with such thoughts, such imagery, arising, arousing such desires, then on the, on the surface level of the mind, the conscious mind, we are thinking and imagining something that is resonant, resonant with, congruent with, harmonious with, in alignment with, much deeper impulse. So it's like setting up a, a frequency here is resonant with a much deeper, deeper frequency here, and we're calling it forth. Rather than trying to generate it out of the thoughts, 
generate loving kindness out of images, which can be pretty thin, right? There's this on the surface, what we're doing with the conscious mind in meditation. Something pretty thin, just guided meditation. But seeking to resonate something much, much deeper. So it's like trying to wake up something from the depths. And so here it is, and then, mm, and then it starts to flow from the depths. Okay? Rather than mm, flowing out of our thoughts. So I would suggest loving kindness is not emerge from <coughs> images and thoughts. It's way too superficial. The images and thoughts may resonate, may arouse, may wake up something in a much deeper way. But happened not infrequently, even in the last retreats last year, and I will end on this point. It's on more than one occasion. There were individuals just doing this practice, and, doing, and primarily focusing on shamatha. And then as they're just going deeper, deeper into the shamatha, then when they, I remember one in particular, one woman then came to me for the weekly meeting. And then and our eyes were just wide, wide open. And made this amazing discovery. And I was just settling deeper, deeper into Shamatha. And then this flow, enormous flow of love and kindness came. And it was unconditional, it was vast, it was had no blockage. And I thought, oh, where did that come from? It was really discovery. She wasn't there, you know, pounding away, trying to cultivate, trying, trying, trying. She was just letting it be open and then, like a geyser. It just flowed up to Now my, my sense of who I am is different. Because she was a very intelligent woman, kind of tidy personality, I think they call an achiever, boss, really ready to be in charge. Um, pretty gnarly, gnarly as in pretty tough, tough-minded, getting, getting his job done, not unkind, but just, you know, like that, boss. And then suddenly just, whoa. Something out of the blue coming up. And she said, now I just look at myself different. I see that too, even if it doesn't come every, up every session, and it doesn't. I see that is something arising from my depths. I did, didn't get it from the teacher, forget it. Didn't get it from Buddhism, didn't get it from outside. And so her very sense of who she was and what kind of a person she was shifted from a discovery. And that was just flowing up spontaneously. And it gave her real hope. Even if that doesn't come up every session, I know that's there. It's waiting to be uncovered more and more, and that's the nature of my practice now. Because that's really good. That is just intrinsically good. The loving kind of love. She knew it was good, and it was deep. So there's the discovery. So we're both cultivating on the one hand, and we're discovering on the other. With no further ado, uh, overall, as I said yesterday, the sitting position will probably be a bit better as long as you're comfortable. But if you're not comfortable, Get comfortable. And I can be in a supine position or sitting like this, whatever you like. As you're settling in, I'll remind you of the mantra. He didn't know I would ever say this, but William saying this mantra for the moment what we attend to is reality. And so much of the of the Maitribhavana cultivation of loving kindness, so much of it is simply directing our attention to the well-being of others. And so that it becomes real. And as it becomes real for us, it's quite natural that we see that similarity between self and others, and as we wish for our own happiness. And we're attending to others' happiness and seeing that it's real, their yearning for happiness is as real as our own, then the yearning for others' happiness really arises quite spontaneously. 
We don't have to be saintly. We don't have to be something special. Because we're attending so much to our own well-being that it's quite natural to wish for our own well-being. Because we're attending so closely to it. It's quite real. So we attend with equal interest. As a mother does for a child, I watch quite closely my stepdaughter and the amount of attention she gives to her, to her son. She's developing shamatha on her son. <laughs> so much attention. She's a wonderful mother, very conscientious. But so much of her thinking, her focusing, her time, her effort, her energy, creativity, so much is focused on her son. And how, how, is it, how could it be possible that she wouldn't really deeply care about her son? It's not possible. She, she would give her life for her son. I have no question about that. She'd give her life happily. If it had to be her life or her son, oh, she'd give her own life. Like that. Why? I think she's spending much more time focusing on his well-being than she is on her own. And I don't think she's terribly unusual. Mothers of the world are good nice, of course. Better than that. Good, nice, papa. At least a little one. of love and kindness to yourself. This is not misplaced. It is the very root of love and kindness for others. Because as we attend to others, we do so with a sense, just as I wish for happiness, so do the others. But as you affirm, embrace a sense of love and kindness for yourself, then you can extend this to others. There's the natural flow from inside to outside. So in the spirit of loving kindness, wishing for yourself, experience a greater sense of fulfillment, of happiness, of ease. Let your awareness descend into the and fill the space of the body. Set your body at Respiration in its natural rhythm. Unleashing it, letting it go. It flows unimpededly, effortlessly, 
the sense of I am the controller, the autonomous agent. Let it go dormant. And allow the breathing simply to occur of its own accord without an agent.
is in the realm of possibility. The unfulfillment, the greatest meaning of your life, the greatest satisfaction. Bring this to mind. Imagine it.
So far as you can, bring to mind this person's own aspiration. What does this person wish for? What is this person's vision of his or her own happiness and fulfillment?
Jesus. back into the space of your mind. And bring to mind another love. Could be a dear friend. Could be a relative. Once again, bring this person to mind as vividly as you can. Bearing in mind, what are this person's
hands of this person also fade back into the space of the mind. And finally for this session, bring the mind into more casual, friend. I'm wonderful when you feel a more general sense of friendliness. But with the awareness that this person is every bit as worthy
console. I'm sure you've noticed by now that in the types of teaching that are very commonly here, there is very little way, little in the way of ritual. And it's not because I think ritual is meaningless. It is because I think ritual can very easily become meaningless. But not that it's not as meaningless by itself. And when I turn and bow to the Buddha, the image of the Buddha, the reverence, body and body that we brought to the world. But for that me, even though it's very short, it's a meaningful, a meaningful ritual. It is a ritual. When I sit up here, there's also just clarity. When I sit up here, you'll see, unless I forget, I don't think I often forget, I'll sit here and snap my fingers. You may be thinking, every time I get here, I must have forgotten something. Not the case. Uh, this is old tradition, Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Impermanence. Dead man talking. I was just remembering one's own mortality. It's really very refreshing. It's very relaxing. <coughs> very relaxing. So then you know, as a teacher, all you need to do is just offer your best with as pure motivation you can. Then you don't worry about anything. People like it, they don't like it. They admire you, they don't admire you. No problem. You're going to be dead soon anyway. So who cares? If you're dead, who cares whether anybody admires you or doesn't admire you? It doesn't make any difference. They give you money, they don't give you money. Who cares? If you're dead so soon, it doesn't matter. So that makes it very relaxing. I like it a lot. Death is a good friend. The awareness of death. Oh, so relaxing. So that's why. That's simple. This, we don't do many rituals. This, I picked this up from my Zen friends. It's a very common in Zen practice. Well, bowing, bowing, bowing. And I learned what they're bowing to. What are they bowing? Am I bowing to your shirt? To your nice, handsome face? Your youth? am I bowing to? I don't think so. You're not that handsome. <laughs> no, bowing to the Buddha nature in each one. Buddha nature in each one. That deserves reverence. On a very practical level, too. A practical level. Everyone here, I have no question. Everyone here came, in a way, to become a better person. To cultivate virtue, create a balance of mind, good heart. Everybody here, I don't think there's one exception. Or I come, I come to Phuket to make more money. I want to be more famous. That's why I came to the eight week retreat. I want to be famous and get lots of students. I don't think so. Right? Good motivation. That's worthy of respect. Anybody who comes, anybody who comes with a yearning to practice virtue, well, that's worthy. That's absolutely worthy of respect. Right? So. That's why I'm bound. That's why. Respect that in every person. We all have those. We all have our defects, unless you're already a Buddha or Arhat. We have our defects. They're not worthy of respect. I get irritated sometimes. You don't have to respect that. Etc. Etc. There's nothing to be respected. But when there's virtue, that's what we respect. So that's all the ritual there is that I'm offering. But I think each one is very short, but can be full of meaning. And if one can do longer rituals, and I do, back in my room, I do also longer, I try, don't always succeed, to make them as meaningful as I can. But when I'm teaching, I like the ritual very short, so the chances of becoming empty ritual, much less. It's too easy, because I spend a lot of time as a monk, I spend a lot of time doing rituals, and it's too easy, it's too easy for that to be, how do you say, just an empty performance. Chanting, 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 chanting. Is anything going on? Yeah, when is this going to be over? When is lunch? Oh, my knees are really killing me. 
blah, 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 blah. Oh, my knees are really killing me. Oh, he's, she's quite cute. She's quite pretty. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and the outsiders, oh, wow, you're chanting so much. I've lived in Sri Lanka. Many monks would chant all night sometimes. Maybe they're really practicing. Maybe they're just getting hoarse. I don't know. But also, beautiful, beautiful liturgy. So often the four measurables, in the Tibetan tradition especially. So often they're just done as a liturgy. Now maybe it's very meaningful. I mean, it's, it's magnificent liturgy. Senjin Tanje Dewa Dante 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 Quite easy, huh? So, one rips through that pretty quickly. How much breathing happened from the French past? And that was a normal speed. And now we finish with four measures. Now, and then we go into Bodhicitta, finish that off in about 30 seconds, and then we can do something else. <laughs> I'd rather linger. I'd really like to linger. Each of these four measures is so rich. Any one of them would transform a life. All four of them, oh my goodness. Fantastic revolution in a whole life. So there we go. Oh, last. So today, I even thought it was a long question. And so I would ask you to just kind of take a look at it, see whether it's relevant to everybody. If so, I'll go ahead and read it and respond now. If it's just more relevant to one person, then I'll answer this just one on one. I'll go ahead and read it. Consider a person who, for several years, while a teenager, regularly used powerful hallucinogenic drugs. So I'm sure that's not relevant to anybody here, but you might know somebody. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you're not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so hallucinogenic drugs. Uh, one is called LSD, whatever that stands for, and magic mushrooms. Okay? One of their final experiences, so this is not a joking matter. One of their final experiences about 12 years ago was an exceedingly bad trip, so a really terrible experience. It led to extreme anxiety, panic attacks, possibly paranoia, but certainly uh, something, uh, something physical and mental uh, suffering for at least a year afterwards. So clearly a massive and detrimental effect on the brain. There's no question about it. This person still suffers greatly from a lack of self-worth, disrupted sleep, and a pervasive sense of badness they feel infects other people they associate with. It's very clear. Here's the enormous potential downside of taking any of those drugs. It's going to be very fun, but gosh, you just it's playing Russian roulette. Russian roulette, because you're really taking refuge in the chemist. And the chemist is working illegally. Man, oh man. I'd rather take refuge in the Buddha myself. Mm -hmm. Some unknown illegal guy working in the chemist lab for his own profit. My brain is a test tube. Oh man, that's crazy. That's why I never encourage anybody, even though some people have had very good experiences with the hallucinogenic, I never recommend it to anybody. It's irresponsible. So I'm aware of research that indicates the teenage um, brain is still developing. This is true. It develops in many ways up to the age of about 21 or so, the final, final development in the late teens, uh, including the frontal cortex. So this is a problem. And Richard Davis, I will just jump in right now, 
Richard Davidson and I were the two keynote speakers at a conference in Yangtze, um, Sikkim, just last December. And this, he gave a very simple but very pointed lecture. And it's quite interesting. I think this is a bit relevant. I will get to the rest of the question. But he was pointing out that uh, not just in the West, but I think, well, in modernity, which is now around the globe, that uh, puberty is, is coming earlier and earlier and earlier, both for boys and girls, I think, especially girls, but for both genders. So girls having periods when they're 12, 11, 10, 9, and boys also something similar. And so they're, they're, they're feeling these, these urges to be sexually active when they're still children. But the, the intelligence, the frontal cortex, the executive control, good judgment and all of that, the, the brain correlates with good judgment and so forth, that yet has years to develop. It's not fully developed until their late teens. So here they are, you know, wanting to have babies when they're 12, or at least the urge is there, and yet their intelligence is still that of a kid. That's a big problem. And, and how this, exactly this shift of hormones kicking in earlier, uh, he didn't explain. Uh, I'm not sure that anybody is very clear. We have so many artificial additives in food and so forth and so on that that's pretty good guess. But it's a serious issue. Well, we have kids who are looking like adults when they're 13 years old. I've seen, I've seen girls that look like they're 19 and they're 13. In fact, that's weird. I guess you just didn't want to be a child at all. You just wanted to skip that one and move directly to late adolescence. But then their intelligence, the, the intellectual maturity and the brain correlates with that are still kids. That's a big problem. So he was addressing this as a neurophysiologist at a conference on education and spirituality. So back here we go. But yes, it is true that the brain is, is very actively developing, uh, a lot of new synapses forming and so forth. Sheer mass of the brain, matter of the brain is increasing right through the teenage years. It pretty well tops off, it kind of balances off, rounds off at the end of the teens, very early 20s. So the teenage brain, uh, brain is still developing and especially vulnerable to drug and alcohol. This is definitely true. And my speculation here is that the high suicide, suicide rates, for example, in two marvelous areas, New Zealand and Sikkim, that I mentioned earlier, extraordinary, but very high teenage suicide rates. I strongly suspect it's related to drugs. Uh, I heard just from one of you here that a lot of use of meth uh, in New Zealand I can really damage the brain. And these poor, silly kids in Sikkim are taking some chemical additive that they, it's used for erasing blackboards or something. And they found that they sniff it, it gives them a buzz. Because right, who knows what brain is? But they're doing it a lot. And then they want to commit suicide. They take the drug and then they want to commit suicide in one of the most beautiful regions in all of India. Spectacular scenery. A lot of Buddhism and Hinduism. So pretty quite sad. So there we are. So yes, their brains are absolutely vulnerable to drug and alcohol, etc. From a Buddhist point of view, is the mind damaged as well as the brain? So this is a, so I'm glad I read it. This is a relevant question for all of us. The answer is yes. The coarse mind. In, I'll speak Guluka terminology. Sometimes I'll speak Dzogchen terminology, Theravada terminology, now Guluka terminology. We we use the one word mind or sen in three different, rather three very different ways. There's coarse mind, subtle mind, and very subtle mind. Semraka, Kama, Shimsha. Right. And so coarse mind is what psychologists study. It's the psyche and includes the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. And this mind is arising independent upon neural activity, genetic influences, environmental influences, diet, exercise, language, acculturation, parental influences, enormous, and independence upon these myriad biological, psychological, environmental influences. Then the mind is arising 
this coarse mind is arising from moment to moment, day to day, and of course it's changing. Your brain changes, your diet changes, your experiences change, and it starts at conception or sometimes shortly thereafter. So it's got bookends, it has a start and a finish. It starts sometime at conception or shortly thereafter, and it ends when your mind dissolves into subtle mind. Subtle mind in the dying process. So it's between those two. For some people, that's five years. For some people, it's 95 years. But either way, it's short. And so this mind is heavily planted and very, very, very much influenced by brain chemistry and all kind of material causes, diet, exercise, environment, parental upbringing, social interactions, and so forth. It's very dependent on that. So if you damage your brain, the answer is, are you damaging the coarse mind? Yes. It's heavily dependent. And Gautama, Prince Gautama, before he became Buddha, he recognized, after six years of austerities, of basically starving himself together and austere practices, intense pranayama, and so forth and so on, all exaggerated, too, too intense. Um, and his body was so emaciated, so weak, that he found that his mind was weak, and he couldn't meditate effectively. And it just mind probably was just dull and ineffective. And then he recognized, well, what have I, where's the upside of this? Yeah, he showed that he was really macho. He showed that he had a very powerful will, that's for sure. He impressed his fellow yogis. But what, what good was it? Because he just felt weak. And why? Because his body was weak. His coarse mind was weak because the body was weak. He was not getting sufficient nourishment and so forth. So then a young woman brought him uh, curd and rice, yogurt and rice, and balanced diet, and protein and carbohydrate. And then he took that, he stored his health, and then he achieved nothing. So even in the life of the Buddha, the body, in, in that life, there it is. The body is very important. This is why proper diet, exercise, being sensible, very important. So you take drugs, you take alcohol, that will not only damage your liver, of course, but it will also damage your brain. Um, I know the number of people, and, and there's studies coming out slowly, that just a, lot of, a great deal of pot smoking, marijuana, not a good effect on the brain. And I've known people who take it for drugs, and they just say the mind is stupid. And it does. I think it's true. It's quite pleasant. I know a little bit about marijuana from an ancient history. That I stopped a long, long, long time ago. But people who didn't become stupid. Mind just doesn't have a clarity it used to. So, the answer is yes. Now, how about the, the, the subtle continuum, the subtle mind? Or, and I'm, I'm saying that it's equivalent to what I'll often re refer to as the substrate consciousness, or the vanga. Does Brain chemistry, drug, alcohol, that is it harm that? No, it doesn't. However, by damaging your coarse mind, making it stupid, making it psychotic, neurotic, what have you, will that obscure your subtle mind so that you can't tap into it, you can't derive the benefit from it. The innate bliss, the luminosity, the non-conceptuality, de sel dopa, that is right there in the very nature of the subtle continuum of mental consciousness, will you be able to tap into that if your mind is neurotic, or drunk, and so forth, or dull, no. So no, you didn't harm it, but you just poured concrete on it. You can't access it, so it doesn't really harm it, but then you can't get any benefit from it, it did harm. And then there's the very subtle mind, Senshitrakami, very subtle mind, also known as Buddha nature, also known as Rikpa, Christina Wehrman. Does that get harmed? by drugs, alcohol, and so forth? No, no way. It doesn't get better. 
by cultivating virtue. It doesn't get worse by being malevolent. It's completely untouched. It doesn't, it doesn't vacillate. It doesn't get better. It doesn't get worse. But it does get more or less obscured. And so the whole one could say the whole point of spiritual practice is to unveil that dimension, which is infinitely beyond the substrate consciousness. But if you're drunk, you damage your brain because of drugs, and so forth, then chances are pretty small to be able to tap into your innermost resources. So could meditation help heal the suffering, and how? It's a very good question, and I think it's, it's slowly being asked uh, in the scientific community, the medical community. I know that there are some who are beginning to study the effects of meditation for even schizophrenia. It's beginning. Might it be helpful? Well, we have, we have a cue here, a, 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 an indicator, a pointer, and that is in cases of acute depression, clinically diagnosed debilitating depression, this is John Teasdale, Mark Williams, Zindel Siegel. They've written a book on this. What they have found is when a person is experiencing acute depression, they are so depressed they want to put a bullet in their heads. They just feel devastated, inoperative, incapacitated. While they're experiencing that, is meditation helpful? The answer is no. They can't meditate. They can hardly do anything. They can hardly breathe. To say, you know, so they can't. But then, with medication, perhaps with some good, very wise talk therapy, then they may be able to alleviate the symptoms of the problem so that it's temporarily managed. The acute symptoms of the depression subside. They feel kind of normal. And then if you introduce meditation then, when the symptoms are not acute, like a rash that is there but has gone dormant, right? If you introduce meditation there, yes, the answer is this. It can be helpful. It can be helpful. So debilitating depression, that's a pretty severe mental disease. And likewise, paranoia, schizophrenia, and other types of really severe mental problems that may be aroused by, caused by, brain damage, whether through drugs, alcohol, and so forth. I have known, oh, way back, almost 40 years ago when I was in Dandala, one person in particular comes to mind. He was from Germany. Uh, and came there, came to India with a boyfriend. And they were just tripping the whole way. LSE, masculine, who knows what. Just all, they were just classic hippies. It was hippie era. And so they went overland from Germany to India and went to Afghanistan, tripping. She broke her hip. I don't know how. She fell, jumped off a bridge, something. They reset it. They re reset it badly. So the hip is not, was not properly set. So then she had a limp. And then she got to Dharmazala, still tripping. She and her boyfriend. Uh, taking again, I think it was the LSD. And then she went completely psychotic. She went schizophrenic. And she was hallucinating, she was babbling constantly, incoherently. She spoke of the devil inside of her. How I met her at all was because her, her friend, I think maybe a little cadre of German hippies, uh, brought her to the Dalai Lama's clinic, the Dalai Lama's doctor's clinic, Dr. Ishidan Pei's clinic, and I lived there. And I quickly became his interpreter as soon as I could speak Tibetan. So I wound up being the middle, the middle person between the doctor and her, and they were hoping maybe she, he could do some good for her with the doctor. Uh, she was completely hung up, uh, really just out of her mind. And while she was so out of her mind, there was essentially nothing we could do for her. She couldn't follow any instructions. She was miserable. I, I, I know one person who was insane, quite happy, kind of cheerful happy. 
triple crazy. She wasn't. She was miserable. And battling all, constantly, constantly battling. So when a person is in that state, the meditation not be hit, not be helpful. But if that if those symptoms, antipsychotic drugs, if those can suppress, that's what it is, suppress the symptoms, then there's a real possibility. A real possibility. And then though, I think it's so important that people, and I know there are very caring physicians and neurophysiologists and so forth who really genuinely have the altruist compassion, want to help such people. And they're professionally trained. I mean, they really know their brain, their brain chemistry. They really know, they've been trained deeply in psychiatry and so forth and so on. But what I think is very important, and it hasn't happened much yet, is people who have that degree of sophistication from the medical and scientific side, that they meet with people who are meditators, meditative directors who have a comparable level of sophistication. And so often they've got all this training, they've got their MD, their PhD, and then they meet with people who've had a, a very simplistic notion of meditation that just be, be here now, and I, moment to moment, you know, whatever comes out, just be aware of it, which is very nice, but come on. That's not all there is to meditation. And to think, oh, meditation works, meditation doesn't work, because this very simplified notion of mindfulness doesn't work, or does work. That's kind of a tragedy. If you've got all this professional training here, and then you meet with complete amateurs over here. So there is professional training on both sides. And professionals should be more professional. The stakes are high. I'm not just speaking out of you know, professional pride here. But if people are really suffering, then you want to make sure they're getting the best from both sides. And there's a wide array of meditations. There's a wide array of shamanic practices, of bhajana practices, for measurable practices, and a wide variety of other practices as well. So make sure you're drawing on a broad repertoire for different types of mental problems. I think I, I'm quite passionate about it. Really, if we're going to be helping people, we must bring the best on both sides. So I think there's a lot of potential here. But in short answer here, first of all, these symptoms have to be ameliorated. I'll tell you an interesting story. It pertains to that same woman. She's quite young, she's only 20 years old. And uh, she, she, she wanted to commit suicide for one thing, and she wouldn't take the medicine, so Dr. Jenner really couldn't help her. If you won't take the medicine, what can you do? And I'm not sure the medicine would have really helped, because that's not the great strength of traditional Tibetan medicine, treating psychosis, not what it's designed to do. And so there she was, her boyfriend abandoned her, he wasn't any fun anymore. So there she was, pretty much on her own. And so a friend of mine, I'll, tell you, I'll say his name, he's a lovely man, an old, old time friend, Gavin Kilty. Gavin Kilty, a uh, Englishman. Uh, somehow she, she, the two of us linked up. He said, you know, we don't know, neither one of us knows anything about medicine or psychosis, but I think we can find something else. And so Gavin took one hand, and I took the other hand, and we walked her down the mountain. Uh, this is just a fun story. Hopefully it's fun. I like telling you, it's at least one person interested. <laughs> we walked her down the mountain thinking, you know, what can anybody do? But we, we knew down the mountain, um, right next near the library, the library of Bedmoods and Archives, there was a man who's truly a holy man. He's a holy man. He wasn't just a great scholar. He kept a teacher tutors of the Dalai Lama. This man was holy. He's really very incredible. incredible. And so he thought that anybody around there actually we would yeah, so we saw him out. And he was in retreat. Not accessible. So then we sought out our teacher, Gishing on Taipei. And he was away just for whatever reason, they're not always accessible. We couldn't get him either. But there was the Gishingan Taipei's interpreter, 
wonderful interpreter. There were very few who were really skilled at that time. This is 1972 or so. Very few people were really fluent in English at that time. He was one of them. Shakaruji. We met up with Shakaruji. And Tijin Rinpoche was not available. Tijin Rinpoche was not there. And we asked Shakaruji, this young Tuku, maybe 25, 25, 50 years old. So Rinpoche was holding this, this crazy woman, you know, and she's babbling, babbling. But Rinpoche is angry with can be done with this girl. She's out of, obviously out of her mind. And he said, well, maybe let's try. So he had a little pouch, a little cloth pouch. And what he had in it was relics, relics. And relics were among things like little threads from the robe of great lamas. Right? Maybe a little bit of hair, something like that. A little sack. And he said, I have here relics from some really great lamas. Highly realized. Let's see. So he took out a pinch, a pinch, and he put it on a little platter, a little plate. And here's this woman, really, she's not connecting with anything. She's just in her own world. Gone. He took this out, and then he lit a match to it. See, it was burnable, like little threads and things like that. It looked like something, it looked like what you sweep off the floor. It didn't look like anything that really interesting at all. But he lit a match to it. As soon as the match it, it kind of went on fire, then he blew it out. So smoke would come out. And he put it right under her nose and said, breathe in. And she could speak some English. And she heard breathe in. So she went, <laughs> she breathed in at the right time. She breathed in. And I was watching the whole thing. I was right there. And it was just amazing. I mean, you look at the woman's face 10 seconds earlier, and you're seeing the face of a crazy person. I mean, she just, she just laid his hand. Everything about it was just perfect. Gone. She breathed in. Within a matter of seconds, her whole demeanor became calm. Just, I'll, I'll try it in a minute. Just, yeah, I hope that just looked like calm and present. That's what she looked like. Right there. And she stopped talking and she just, there's a young German woman. And then seconds went by and she was just there. I don't recall her saying anything. And then we saw a little bit of fear come to her eyes. And she said, please do that again. For, every, for a moment, everything was okay. And then she gradually slipped right back into the psychosis. So it was not, that was not a fear. But it was remarkable. As I think we cannot call this placebo effect. She had no idea what this was about. She had almost no idea about anything. She just breathed in the smoke. But for a while there, she was just sitting in sanity. Resting in sanity. But that's not a cure. That just gave her a little bit of sanity, temporarily. And then she, so she was taken back to Germany, and I think she was medically treated there. Hopefully she, since I wasn't, I hardly even knew her at all. I knew her only when she was crazy. Uh, and I was not able to follow that. So the moral of that story is, if through the, the, the expertise, the psychopharmaceutical knowledge, experience of the Western tradition, of modern medicine, not just Western, if that can help to attenuate the symptoms of psychosis for whatever reason comes up, then I think meditation has real promise. But it's very hard when people are experiencing the acute system, the symptoms of paranoia, depression, and so forth. It's very hard to get through. So that's my suggestion. <laughs> Lastly, if any of the retreatants have professional expertise in this area, do they have any observations or advice?
And so, uh, so that's, that's it. So I, I know there are at least some professionals here. Uh, I've said everything I can. Obviously, it wasn't much. But I think this is very fertile ground for further research. There really should be research. Because in most cases, in my experience, and if I'm wrong, then tell me, but in most cases, the psychopharmaceutical drugs for mental disease are treating symptoms. And very rarely get to a cure, so you don't have to take the drug anymore. That's true for ADHD and antipsychotic drugs, and so forth and so on. So that's certainly better than nothing. I'm not a fanatic in the, oh, no drugs, no drugs ever. Because that, I think, is harsh. I think it's kind of, <laughs> I think it's, it means fairly to not wish people to be free of the disease, at least of the symptoms. But if the, the drugs, the talk therapy, and so forth can help to attenuate the symptoms so that one can go deeper and actually bring about a healing, well, of course, everyone would agree. That's better than simply suppressing the symptoms. So uh, I know there are at least, I know to a fact, there are at least two people in that profession. Anything to add that you might wish to, or should we just move on? about 15 minutes. Anything coming up in theory or practice? Uh, again, it doesn't have to be questions. It could be observations and stuff. Anything coming up? And if not, we don't have to say. Yes. And still, again, for, for this whole week until I think we all pretty well know each other's names, please do say your name. Yes, it's Rhonda. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about uh, joyous effort. Joyous effort. Towards your mouth, sorry, you <laughs> um, unless it's somebody over to your right, <laughs> yeah. right, um, right into the mic, and fairly close, probably about three inches best. Okay, there you we go. Really embarrassed. <laughs> no, no, nothing to be embarrassed. So, um, I've, I've always admired people who can be extremely positive and Just that. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Just that. How, how to be joyful at all times. <laughs> That's a perfectly good way. There are really two very different approaches to seeking to be happy all the time. There's a lot of people would love this. Uh, and one is to be like a flower in a garden going from one flower to the next flower to the next flower to the next flower. And just try, try, try to find a whole bunch of things that will make you happy. And so that's the, the relentless pursuit of hedonic pleasure. And some people are really good at it, and also very lacking, very lacking. They just don't get inhibited by things like messy things like ill health or injury or personal tragedy. They just luck out for a while. So that's one approach. And there, there's a lot of, psycholo there's a lot of psych psycholo psychological literature, even under the rubric of positive happiness, positive psychology, that's basically telling you how to, you know, just go, just keep on being happy and happy and arousing yourself in happy ways. Cultivating optimistic thinking and drawing on your strengths and being positive and so forth and so on. And it's all hedonic. 
It's not bad, but it's opioid. And ever so often, I mean, frankly, almost without exception, has nothing to do with ethics. I've really noted this in the in psychological literature on positive psychology. I'm waiting for them to get around to saying, maybe your behavior counts too. You know, and acting, acting, behaving in really benevolent ways and avoiding injurious behavior might actually have something to do with genuine happiness. It's not started much, and I think there are very good reasons, but I won't elaborate on that right now. Um, the deep suspicion, and on the part of some, really aversion in the scientific community, anything that looks like religion. And so that you throw out religion, you throw out ethics in many cases, and then you have amoral pursuit of genuine happiness. And then the other approach, of course, is the pursuit, of, the pursuit of the cultivation of genuine happiness, which then is not dependent on, upon pleasant stimuli coming in, not even intellectual ones. It's easy to think, and I can, I can understand this. Some people say, okay, when you're practicing dharma, you're generating happiness internally by generating internal stimuli. And part of positive psychology, learn optimism. Learn how to take a positive outlook. Learn how to be optimistic. And so you're internally generating positive stimuli, you know, so that your thoughts are arousing, ah, today will be a good day. Today will be a good, I will succeed. I will succeed. I am a person of worth. You know, like you're a cheerleader, you know, for, for your team. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. There is something deeper. And I've seen it. There is something deeper. Fact. And so as I define the term, and, I, it's, and my definition is very strongly inspired by Buddhism. The genuine happiness, genuine happiness, is something that is not dependent upon stimulation. Right? But now, if that's the route we're going to go, then we should expect some time of, uh, and for non-native English speakers, what I'm about to say is going to sound totally weird, uh, a period of cold turkey. Cold turkey is not a cold bird. <laughs> not like a cold bird. But if a person is addicted to drugs, like cocaine, and, and you get really addicted, physically addicted, or, uh, or meth, is a very, I've heard is a really addictive drug, or, co or heroin, absolutely, and then you're suddenly taken off of it, and you don't get any access to it at all, then I, apparently it's really awful. I mean, it feels terrible. And you're going through cold turkey. Okay, you've been taken away from that which you're addicted to, and for a while, it feels just terrible. And then slowly, the biological effects wear off, and then you can come out the other side and actually maybe find some happiness. Well, the practice of shamatha shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't for any protracted period be awful, like cold turkey. But it is when you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, when you're practicing awareness of awareness, even when you're practicing settling the mind, it is deliberately disengaging your attention from all pleasant stimuli. Why are you doing it? These are neutral stimuli. What can you say about the sensations of the abdomen? They're not, they're not unpleasant, but I don't know if anybody said, oh, more, more. <laughs> I don't think so. It's not that pleasant, you know? And likewise in the nostrils. I mean, they're just sensations. They're really about as neutral as it gets. It's kind of like a glass of water. It's, it's, it's fine, but unless I'm you know, dying of thirst, I'm not going to get a big buzz out of a glass of water. Just what I said, expected. If it wasn't very good, it wasn't very bad. It was water. You know, so it's fine. Just what I expected. All I wanted out of a glass of water was water. 
And so you're intending to do something neutral. So let's take this example, the incidents, mindfulness of breathing. So there you are, you're intending to do something that is flat out neutral. It really is by design, not unpleasant, not pleasant. And you do it for 24 minutes. You do it for four hours a day, six hours a day, eight hours a day. If one were just thinking about meditation without doing it, one would think, man, that's going to be boring. Nobody's going to want to do that for hours a day because it's just boring. You're not doing any of the fun stuff. You're focusing on something that is not intrinsically interesting. I mean, when the, once the breath has gone in, you know what to expect. It'll go out. And unless you're ready to die, once it's gone out, it's going to come in. So the, the excitement's gone. You know, like, oh, what's going to come next? <laughs> and one breath pretty much like all the other ones, right? So if you're looking for entertainment, you went, looking, you went to the wrong theater. Now, this is boring theater. It plays just gray screen all two hours. You pay your $10 and you look at a gray screen. You want to see the rerun? <laughs> it looks just like the first time. <laughs> so there you are focusing at length session after session on something that's neutral. That's cold turkey. That's cold turkey. Because there are so many ways we can entertain ourselves. Reading really interesting Dharma books for fun, for the entertainment of it. It's grist for the mill, food, it's intellectually challenging. You know, Dharma books can be entertaining. Let alone entertainment books. Let alone music. Let alone getting care packages from home of goodies. Being munching in between sessions. Um, and so there you are, you're, you're disengaging from all of the sensory stimuli and intellectual stimuli to which, frankly, we can be easily addicted. And in doing that, there can be a period that feels like kind of a drought. Like nothing's happening. And then something interesting happens. I'll just mention, I'll backtrack a little bit. Four years ago, we held the Shamatha Project. And we had 70 people going on for three months practicing on average about six, seven hours a day. Some a little bit less, five hours. Less than five hours was uncommon. Eight, nine hours was common. Um, Seventy people. There wasn't a monk among them. Not, not a monk or none. So no one who had chosen a right vocation just to devote him or herself to meditation, to spiritual. They were all laborers. And some had one year of, of meditative practice. Some had 20, 30 years of meditative practice. Pretty even men and women, as I think, almost exactly even, is how it turned out. And the scientists, none of whom was, were really serious meditators, had done, you know, had a really dedicated practice. They were assuming there would be a pretty significant attrition rate of people just, one week, I'm out of here. This is boring. <laughs> this is just so boring. I'm out of here. Or they'd start dating. Or they start seeing, you know, just one thing, you know, they, they find something to do that's fun. And a lot of people were young people. They weren't all over the hill. And so they were calculating there would be a really significant attrition rate, and they needed to have a pretty high number to get statistically meaningful data. If you have only three people left, that's not very significant. And frankly, I didn't know. I, I've lived many, I've been teaching for, I don't know, 25 years at that time, 30 years, something like 30 years. Um, but, I, but I hadn't led three-month retreats before, and not with such a large group. I didn't know. I knew I'd offer my best, but there it is. My best is limited. But I didn't know either. We'd never done this before. And there was no television, no radio, virtually no internet access, no entertainment. Everybody was encouraged to be 
Salavit during this time, at least I told them, don't start new romances. If you're married, you know, great, but don't start a new romance in a shamatha retreat. The timing is awful. <laughs> and I tell you that, oh, oh, okay. If you already have a romance, fine, no problem. But now's not a time for a new one. <laughs> and so what happened? And a lot of these people, about half of them, I think, were practicing mindfulness of breathing for six, seven, eight hours a day for three months. And the big entertainment they had was going for walks in the, in the wilderness. It was nice, but it, that's it. I go for a walk. Nobody left. Not one person left. And they could leave. Nobody even, they could leave. Anybody could leave at any time. Everybody knew that. There were no handcuffs, no chains to bed, nothing. And also no big deep frown. If somebody wanted to leave, they leave. I don't want them there. Why would I want them there? They don't want to meditate. Why would I want them there? I'd rather have them go. Nobody left. Nobody seriously considered it. So now what happened? Because they're doing something that should be boring for day after day. Now it's a three-month term. They got sentenced to three months in a concentration camp. <laughs> and lo and behold, out of letting the awareness rest with clarity, as much as you can, as much continuity as possible, as much clarity as you can, with a sense of ease, you're focusing on something where you're getting no pleasant stimulation at all. Right? But you're not grasping onto with craving and aversion, craving and aversion, all of that. You're not doing that because there's nothing to crave and there's nothing to be averse about. The breath is a breath. Who hates their breath? And what comes out of that is, first of all, a sense of its soothing. It's kind of like, it kind of feels nice, relaxing, soothing, kind of calming. That's not bad. And then they go deeper, and they find, I could get used to being calm. It's really not that bad. Calm is good. It's not exciting. And nowadays, often pleasure is strongly associated with excitement. I'm so excited about the new ice cream that's going to be serving tonight. I'm so excited about whatever. So it's so much associated with excitement, especially the youth terminal. So excited, excited. There's nothing exciting here. But first, it's soothing, calming, but peaceful. And you're abiding there in the center. And then the genuine happiness flows like a little sprout, like a little sprout. Sprout out of the center. Rather than happiness arising from in response to some pleasant catalyst stimulation, which immediately kicks up, oh, I feel good, I like that. You know, and the grasping and craving come. It comes out of the center, and out of a sense of calm, soothing, it becomes a little bit sweet, a little bit satisfying. Like, I'd like to do more. Or it's over, oh, I think I can do another session. Kind of little thing like that, like, Good, I got another 10 minutes. Oh, good. Kind of want to do it. It's not blissful, certainly not exciting, but keep on wanting to doing it more. And then gradually, what can unfold out of this, and it's not the same for everybody. Some people quite quickly, some people more slowly, but then it actually can turn out that, that you're, ex I'll choose my words carefully, your experience of the breath can start to become blissful. The experience of the becomes blissful. Not that the sensations themselves are somehow getting flavored with honey or ambrosia or something, but the Buddha refers to it as an ambrosial dwelling. 
when you remember, when you develop and cultivate the mindfulness of breathing, an ambrosial dwelling, the quality of experience being that comes from this by abiding in the center, starts to take on a greater sense of joy, pleasant, become more pleasant, more pleasant, as your mind is descending into, dissolving into substrate consciousness, which by nature is blissful. You're getting these shafts of light, of bliss, coming up from a deeper level. And so, now to give a short answer, because it's already six o'clock in the past, uh, we cultivate it from the inside and from the outside. So, Amanda, as yesterday, yesterday about reading. Doing some reading. Sometimes reading biographies of people who really done very well in meditation. You know, whether it's Miladeva or someone more recently. Uh, but reading about people who really experience great joys, great meaning through the meditative practices. Coming back to reading that inspires, that informs, that gives gives something of this enthusiasm. You know? uh, engaging in meditation. Now of course we're not going to kind of go cold turkey here, practicing loving kindness can be very pleasant can be very pleasant as you attend to a person you really love and you're experiencing it. You're really tasting it. Your affection, your warmth, imagining them really flourish and find joy. That's nice. It's, it's stimulus-driven, but really wholesome. It's really virtuous, hedonic pleasure. Right? And likewise, compassion. It's not joyful like loving-kindness is, but there's something very sweet, something good about it. Empathetic joy is flat-out joyful. Attending to others' joys, the successes that happen, that's just joyful. So we bring in these, these, these kinds of meditative stimulation through other meditative practices. For those of you who have faith, who have reverence, then taking refuge, attending to the qualities of your gurus, or of the Buddha, the Buddha, the great enlightened beings of the past, reflecting upon them, dwelling upon them, arousing the aspiration yourself, might I become a Buddha, might I become, it gives me lightness and joy. So we come in from every which way. We come in from every which way, conceptual way, reading way, meditative way to arouse, to stimulate, to kind of inspire through activity. And in the meantime, all of this is kind of like a bunch of friends gathering on, around a little plant. You know, go plant, go, go plant, go, you know? Smiling on it and the little plant grows up in the center. And that's where this joy is arising right out of the nature of the plant. It doesn't need any stimulation. It is tapping into a sense of well-being that's already built and just covered over. Shama is designed to uncover. Okay? That's how. <laughs> That'll be good. All right. So enjoy it. Enjoy it now where you have hedonic pressure, almost certainly. It's coming. So let's, let's not be embarrassed about that. Let's enjoy the good news.